This morning, I think I can say with probably 100% certainty that there are lots and lots of you this morning and lots and lots of people that you know whose lives are being ruined by two words. Those words are keeping you and keeping them from living with joy. You can't sing, this is the day that the Lord hath made, let us rejoice and be glad in it. You, you just mouth those words or you went through the motions because these two words are absolutely stealing your joy. They're causing you extreme worry. They make you feel like you're falling behind as if you'll never catch up, you'll never get over the hump. They're keeping you from experiencing the the life change that God has both commanded and desires for you. They're preventing you from having victory over the things that keep getting you over and over and over. These two words won't surprise you in any way because you think them all the time. They cause you to sin against God, honestly, and against others when you try to take advantage of what you want from these two words, when you do that independently. These two words are keeping you forever discontented in life. And so this morning, if you are a discontented person, if you're somebody who says, just life is not what I want it to be, and it seems as if it never will, I can guarantee you that it comes down to these two words. If... Only. If only. If only. Those two words are killing you. They're ruining your life. And you know it. This isn't a surprise to you this morning. You've said those words over and over. Maybe not exactly those two words, but something along those lines. If only. Young people say it. If only I were older. Then life would be great. We all said that, didn't we, when we were younger and then we got older? And what do we say then? If only I were younger, life would be great. If only, if only I looked better. Oh, you know what? Then, then, then I'd feel better. Well, if only I felt better, I'd, I'd probably look a little better. If only I were better at this or that. If only, if only I, I would improve in this particular area. You know, then things would really pick up for me. Then it would really take off. If only they had done this. If only they hadn't done that. You know, if only they would would think about doing this for me. If only they wouldn't do that anymore. If only I had more. You know, if, if only just a little more. A little more money, a little more stuff. Or if only I had less, I wouldn't have to worry about so much. If only things were different. If only I had a different job. If only I had different parents. If only I were at a different school or had gotten a different degree or had different friends or a different house or different car or a different boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or wife or kids or whatever. If only things were different. If only. And those two words are destroying you. They're ruining your life. They're ruining your walk with God. They're ruining your marriage, your home, your mind, your dreams. Everything about you is being ruined because of those two words. I know that because they ruined my life too. 
I say them all the time. If only, if only, if only. I've said them for years, and I'll probably say them a few more times before I leave this planet. But I think you would agree that those two words are causing us to remain forever discontented, forever dissatisfied in life, because we're always looking for if only. And I hope today... My prayer for you and my prayer for me is that today is the day we begin to leave, if only, behind. There's only one way that we can do that, and that is to submit ourselves to God's Word, to let it interrupt our lives this morning, pour into us, change us, and then be our guide from this point forward. I'll tell you this, without following God's Word and without an ongoing, ever-deepening relationship with Jesus Christ, you will, if only yourself, for the rest of your life. It's going to happen. Now, if you like the way things go when you just constantly play this if-only game, you can tune out or walk out right now and, and things will be just the same as they were when you walked in. No problems. But if you say, you know what, I, I, I have to admit that I agree with you. Those words are killing me. They're ruining my life and I'm tired of it. I'm tired of forever just saying, if only, if one day, one day, someday, maybe. Then pay attention to what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 4 that we'll look at. A very familiar verse is included in this particular passage in this sermon. Now this verse is typically yanked out of context and... If you don't put something in its context, I'll just say this. When you're reading the Bible, it's context that drives meaning. If you want to know what something means, don't just read that one verse. Read what's around it and understand what was going on when it was written. And so that's what we're going to try to do. Paul, when he wrote this, was on house arrest. We believe in Rome at the time. And he was writing a letter to a church that he had started about 10 years before. Now, this is the 18th sermon out of 20 in this particular sermon series called A Letter from Your Pastor. And you should know by now all the stuff that I'm telling you if you've been here. So, so bear with me, but I tell you this. I've been told that by the 10th time you say something, people have heard it the first. So I'm going to say it 20 times, and you will have heard it twice. So this is, this is 18, so you're hearing for the 1.8 time. And he was on house arrest, writing a letter to a church that he had started 10 years before. They found out that he was on house arrest, and, and they were able to send him a gift, some money probably, some other stuff, maybe to help him out. And they inquired about, how you doing, Paul? And he wrote in response to say, listen, thank you so much. I'm doing okay. And let me tell you some stuff. As your founding pastor, I'm going to try to help you out a little bit. And, and we're going to get really to, to, to what is the, the, the crux, if you will, the, the, the reason that he wrote the letter in the first place is found in these particular verses to say thanks for this gift. So look with me, Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 10, and we'll finish up this morning with verse 14. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that once again you renewed your care for me. You were, in fact, concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know both how to have a little, and I know how to have a lot. In any and all circumstances, <clears throat> I've learned the secret of being content. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I'm able to do all things through Him who gives me strength. Still, you did well by sharing with me in my hardship. Now, again, a very familiar verse there, verse 13. Some versions will say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. That's a familiar verse, but when you see it in its context, we'll begin to understand really what that verse means. We'll get to more of that in just a minute. 
Verse 10, he, he tells them, thank you for the gift. He says, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord greatly that once again you renewed your care for me. He says, you were in fact concerned about me, but you lacked the opportunity to show it. Once again there, he says that those words, once again, is a culmination. That, that it's, those words in the Greek just simply mean your care and concern culminated. It came to the point where you did something about it. Paul recognizes there are a lot of people who are concerned, at least they say they are, and they do nothing. They're just talking about it. Paul recognizes that the Philippians, these folks were extremely concerned about him. They loved him. They wanted the best for him. And that added up when they had opportunity to this culmination that they expressed their concern. He said, your concern was once again renewed. It was blooming again. That's what that word means. Like flowers in the spring in full bloom. And Paul says, thank you so much. You've been thinking about me. You've been concerned and and now you displayed it when you had opportunity. And you can see his pastoral mind here if you kind of follow along a little bit. He, he doesn't want them to think that he, that, he, that he figured they had forgotten him. He said, look, I know you've been concerned all along. You just didn't have a, didn't have a chance. Obviously, it's a, a distance from where he was, and they didn't exactly have Twitter and email and Facebook back then, and you couldn't just gift somebody through Facebook on their birthday some $10 gift certificate like you can now. You couldn't send them a, a, you know, an email and attach an Amazon gift card to it. It wasn't like that back then, obviously. They had to have somebody who was available to go, and they had to have the means to do it. And so Paul says, look, I know you're concerned all along, and I know finally you had the opportunity, and you were obedient to God. And that's what he says, I rejoice in the Lord. This is interesting. Because Paul doesn't specifically say thanks for the gift. He just simply praises God for the obedience of people who loved him and loved God and acted upon it. Isn't that something? Uh, It's a subtlety, but I hope you get that. Paul's not so much worried about the fact that they gave him something. We'll see in verse 11, he was going to tell them, I really didn't, I I was doing okay anyway. He's excited as a pastor that people followed the Lord. Let me tell you this, there is nothing. There is nothing that you can give to me. You can't give me enough money. You can't give me a bigger parsonage. You can't buy me a brand new Ford F-150 quad cab. You could, but, but you can't buy me one of those that will do... Sorry, that, that will do anything more for me than if you simply in the Lord obey him and live for him. Let me tell you something. That's all that I want. Paul said, thanks, but not just for giving me something. I appreciate that. Absolutely. He'll see in verse 14. You, you did well by doing that. But he says, look, I'm just so glad you obeyed the Lord. You see the, the, the heart of the pastor in all of this. And he says in verse 11, just so you know, he says, I don't say this out of need, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. He said, I wasn't freaking out. I wasn't in despair. I I wasn't desperate. No, yeah, maybe physically I had some need. Paul's talking. He said, really, I was okay. So I want you to know that your gift wasn't just about giving something to me. I'm not worried about that. I'm good with whatever he says. He says, I'm not not saying thanks because all was lost and I I didn't know what to do. He said, instead, look at verse 11. I have learned, he said, life has given me instruction. That learned right there means to receive instruction. Life's given me instruction. I've gotten the lessons. The school of hard knocks, if you will, was what Paul was enrolled in for the majority of his life. And certainly the part when he was a believer in Jesus. I've learned, my life has given me instruction. I've learned to be content. Now, that little word right there, content, 
in the original language, and I'm no Greek scholar, I'll just tell you this, I'm not trying to impress you, but I just want you to really get the full impact of what it means. It means to be self-sufficient. The Stoic philosophers back in the ancient Roman times and around the time of the first century when Paul wrote this, they believed that self-sufficiency was the highest of all virtues. That for you to depend upon no one and nothing, you had reached the pinnacle. Now, of course, that's still the same in our world today. Nothing has changed. We still are stoic philosophers. We want to be independent. We want to need no one. And especially if you're a man who was raised that way to believe that, that's sort of how we operate. Paul is saying, I've learned to be self-sufficient, but you have to understand he's not just borrowing a phrase from stoic philosophy. He's saying, my sufficiency doesn't come from myself. As we'll see in verse 13, it comes from Jesus himself. I've learned to be sufficient in God, content in him, Paul says. His reliance on Jesus releases him from being dependent upon other people and what they do or don't do for him. Do you see what he's saying there? He's not saying, I have it within me, just in and of myself to be so strong. He's saying, look, I depend upon the Lord so much that I was released from depending upon you in the first place, but thanks anyway, because you obeyed the Lord. He says, in whatever circumstances, no matter what, I know that I have within me the sufficiency of Christ to do whatever it is that I need to do. He goes on in verse 12 to explain a little bit more about that. He says, I know both how to have a little... And I know how to have a lot. In any and all circumstances, I've learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or need. So you see, he's setting up this compare and contrast. These extremes, and Paul certainly faced a lot of extremes. Paul faced so many extremes that he wrote about it, and he just said, I've faced this, 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 shipwrecks, beatings. I've been whipped. I've been, I've been thrown, stones thrown at me out of the whole deal. I've been imprisoned, all that stuff. He's faced all kinds of extremes. And he says, in all of that, I, I know how to have a little. I know how to have a lot. I know how to be well-fed. I know how to have need. In all of that, he says, I've learned the secret of being content. That word know when he says that means not only have I received instruction, but now I've learned through experience. You know, it's one thing to hear it. It's another thing to live it. Some of you say, I didn't learn anything in school, but when I started my job or when I started this or started that, you know, you can take all the parenting courses you want to take, but until you become a parent, you don't know anything about being a parent. And then by the time you learn about being a parent, they're gone. That's just unfair. It really is. I, I don't know anything about being a parent, but you gain experience, don't you? You can read and you can gain instruction all day long, but until you experience it, you haven't learned a thing. And Paul says, I know, I have learned and understand now through experience. I know how to have a little, he says. That's less than enough. Not just, well, this month's a little tight. I don't have what I need. You ever experienced that? You, you run out of money before the, you run out of month. It's the 20, what is today? The, the 29th, and you say... <laughs> 29th, how many days are there in jail? I only got one more. Good, I can, I can survive on some beans and cornbread till tomorrow. You know, that's the way that it is. Paul says, I've learned how to survive on, on a little. When there's not enough. Not just tight, but there's literally not enough. Negative cash flow, if you will. He says, I've also learned how to survive on a lot. Which means more than is expected. He's been in both. It's interesting that he would have to learn to be content with a lot, isn't it? something about that it's not just those who don't have enough who are discontented it's sometimes those who have more than enough who are never content 
He says, in any and all circumstances, any sorts of things, all those extremes, that training ground for me, he says, has taught me. Those circumstances have been my my arena for spiritual growth. You realize that you'll never grow spiritually unless your circumstances change. You understand that? You'll never learn to trust the Lord if everything's always smooth. You'll never learn really to experience His blessing that you can't explain. His peace that goes beyond understanding if things never go south a little bit in your life. He says, in any and all things, I have learned the secret of being content. Now, when he uses that little phrase, he pulls something that their readers would have immediately understood as, as, as sort of an initiation. You ever been in a secret club? Anybody grow up and be in a secret club? I had one when I was a kid with some cousins. We had a secret club that all of us were a part of. It wasn't really that secret. But, but you know, you, you have these little rituals that you have to go through. And back then, what they had were these different kinds of religions that had these secret things that you had to be initiated into. These pagan, godless religions. And they would have these things that you'd have to be initiated. Paul says, life has initiated me into the secret of contentment. I'm now in the contentment club. Jesus is the one who initiated him. I remember when I was a freshman in high school. And we had these, these seniors who, who thought they would initiate all the freshmen who were going to, to be a part of the program at Pleasure Ridge Park High School. And, 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 of course, the more you fought the initiation, of course, the worse that it was. And, and my initiation was no fun for them because what they wanted to do with me was something they called a Mongolian. I have no idea where they came up with the term, but all that meant was one guy grabbed you and threw you on the ground and about 15 guys jumped on top. And then they kept jumping on and, you know, and so when they came to get me, you know what I did? I just laid down. Go ahead. And they looked at me and said, you're no fun. That's exactly right. I'm not stupid either. To be initiated, of course, is to, to be welcomed into something. And Paul says, I, I've been initiated by life, more importantly, by Jesus Christ in my life, into this club of contentment. And now I get the secret. Now I can see behind the curtain and I understand this secret of being content. He said, I know what it's like to be well fed. You ever have that food coma feeling after you eat? Now some of you are going to experience that today. You're going to head up to Sirloin Stockade and you're going to go through the buffet line more than once because you paid enough for it. And you say, I'm going to get my money's worth. So you're going to start with a salad, the obligatory salad at the buffet. You know what I'm talking about. Just to make people think you're trying to eat healthy that day. You went to a buffet for crying out loud. You're not trying to eat healthy. You're trying to eat a lot. That's okay. And then you'll go back through the line on the one side where they got some chicken and some vegetables. And then you'll wind your way around where they got the roast beef and all that. And you'll go on the other side where they've got the fish and the hush puppies. So you've got three different trips that you can make. And then every time you walk back to your seat, what do you pass? Dessert. Man, there's some variety there. So you you know you you get a little of this and a little of that and a little you know and something else and of course it all adds up and then you get home and guess what? Whew. Man, I need to take a nap. It's called a food coma. It just knocks you out. That's what it is. Paul says, I know what it's like to be well fed. Like I've gone to the sirloin stockade and I'm now in a food coma on Sunday afternoon. That's what he says. I know exactly what that's like. I've experienced that. He also says, I know what it's like to be hungry. I know what it's like to say, I'm not sure what I'm going to eat today. My stomach is growling. You've got those two extremes. He says, I understand. I've been in both of those. He said, I know what it's like to have abundance, for things to be overflowing, to have some to spare. 
And he says, I know what it's like to be in need. That word is elsewhere used as to describe the dropping of the water level in a river. I know what it's like to see things just kind of flow away. I know what it's like, he says, to scrape the bottom of the barrel. And I know what it's like to have more than I need. I saw a study this week from the New York Times. An article written, and the title was something along the lines of the hardest place to live in America. Maybe some of you saw this, I don't know. I, I picked it up on Twitter. I, was, I saw a, a retweet of somebody who said, uh, this is not good for the commonwealth. Because the most difficult place, according to this study, to live in all of America is Clay County, Kentucky. Clay County, Kentucky. The, the two extremes that they held up in this particular example were Los Alamos County, New Mexico, and Clay County, Kentucky. Here's what they say. This is verbatim from the article. Here are some specific comparisons. Only 7.4% of Clay County residents have at least a bachelor's degree. So education was one of their things to figure out how hard is life here. While 63.2% do in Los Alamos County. The median household income, another measurement, in Los Alamos County is $106,426, almost five times that in Clay County. In Clay County, 12.7% of residents are unemployed and 11.7% are on disability. The corresponding figures in Los Alamos are 3.5% unemployed and 0.3% on disability. Los Alamos County's obesity rate is 22.8%, while Clay County's is 45.5%. And Los Alamos County residents live 11 years longer on average than those in Clay County, Kentucky. You have the best place, the easiest place, if you will, to live in all of America, and the hardest place. Paul says, I've lived in Los Alamos County, New Mexico, and I've lived in Clay County, Kentucky. And you know what? So have you. I mean, you have lived where things are going so well that you don't want to do anything wrong to mess it up. You've had those times in your life. I know you have. You say, well, that was a long time ago. That's fine, but I know you have. And you've also lived in Clay County, Kentucky, where life is hard. And there's, there's no real good way out of it. And things don't seem to have any hope of getting better, no matter how many... Shots of adrenaline, so to speak, you pour in there. It's not going to get any better. You've lived in Los Alamos County and you've lived in Clay County. And Paul says, I've lived in both as well. And in either place, it doesn't bother me because I know the secret of being content. Paul said, I don't care if I live in Los Alamos County or if I live in Clay County. I'm the same. I'm good. I wonder what you and I would say say, well, I'm living in Los Alamos County. I ain't moving. I'm staying there. Now, God, I don't care if you've called me to Clay County, Kentucky. Somebody else out there can do that. I don't want to live in Clay County. We, we would probably say something different. How was Paul able to be so content, so sufficient in Christ that it didn't matter if he lived in Los Alamos or Clay County? He didn't care. The next verse tells us, verse 13, I am able to do all things through him who gives me strength, through him who strengthens me, through Christ who gives me strength. This verse has driven me crazy for years. 
you all know that, that I played baseball growing up and played in high school and played in college. And this verse absolutely drove me nuts because you know what? I saw it everywhere. People who didn't claim any knowledge or love of Jesus Christ, and guess what? In their locker, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. On these posters that I used to have, here's this guy just hitting the ball 500 feet. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I tried. I couldn't hit the ball 500 feet. That's why I'm standing here today. I couldn't do that through Christ who gives me strength. Lord knows I tried and I prayed for it. God help me to hit the ball 500 feet. Look at me. I can't, you know, I can't hit the ball 500 feet. This is not about sports. It's not about business. It's not about just something in the abstract. This is not about anything, but I can be content in all circumstances. Doesn't matter what life throws at me. I'm sufficient in Christ because he's the one who makes me sufficient. I'm able to do those things through the one who makes me able. Do you see it? Do you see how this verse is so wrongly understood? When we take it out of its context and we don't realize Paul's talking about, you know what, if I'm in a food coma or if I'm starving, it doesn't matter. If I live in Los Alamos County, if I live in Clay County, I'm okay. I'm able to be either place. I'm able to be content and sufficient and okay in either place, not because of what I have within me on my own, but because of who lives in me and who strengthens me. I'm able to do those things because of the one who makes me able. That's what he's saying. He's not saying step up to the plate quote a verse, and there it goes. It's not what he's saying. He's not saying in your life that if you've got something difficult, a project you're working on, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's not what he's talking about. What he's saying is whether you find yourself living in Los Alamos or Clay County, you have within you the one who can make you able to be sufficient for all things. And let me tell you, that's better than hitting the ball 500 feet. Because that actually lasts. And that actually matters. And that's actually what we need in life. J.B. Phillips' translation says it this way, I'm ready for anything through the strength of the one who lives within me. I can make it. I'll be okay. Not because of me, but because of the one who makes me able to make it and to be okay. The one who makes me content. Paul closes his, his thought here. He says, still, you did well by sharing with me in my hardship. Basically, he says, look, still, thanks for obeying the Lord. I just want you to know it's not because I needed all this stuff because I'm okay in Jesus Christ and he's all I need. But thanks anyway. I'm glad you obeyed the Lord. It did help. It was a blessing. If you were Paul... What would you have written in verses 10 to 14? Honestly. What would you have tweeted from house arrest, posted on Facebook? What would you have said? What would your hashtags be? Hashtag this stinks. Hashtag send more money. What would you say? What would you write? Get me out of here. I don't understand what God is doing. This doesn't make any sense. I've done nothing wrong. Me, of all people, I've been out the first and greatest Christian missionary. Look at all the good I've done for the kingdom of God. And this is what I get? Forget this. I'll do something else. What would you have written? Most of us would include probably a few if-only lines. You know, if only God would get me out of this, there'd be so much more I could do for the kingdom. You know, if only these Roman guards would just let me have a little bit more freedom. 
You know, if only they'd feed me instead of one meal a week, three squares a day, I'd be good. You know, if only, if only, if only, if only, that's probably what we would have written. But he was content. He was at peace. He was sufficient, no matter what. And I'll tell you this, his circumstances were always up in the air. <laughs> it wasn't as if this was even going to be his last stop along the way. He didn't know what was going to happen. He said in chapter 1, I don't know if I'm going to live, if I'm going to die. <laughs> Yet he says in chapter 4, I'm good. You kidding? He was human, by the way. Just like you and me. He wasn't a notch below Jesus, but a step above us. He was human, just like all of us. He called himself the chief of all sinners. This must have been a struggle for him. He said, I've learned, I've been taught, I've been initiated. I've gotten the instruction from life, and this is where it's gotten me. And no matter what I face, I'm sufficient in Jesus Christ. Let me tell you what keeps you from being content. You keep waiting on the world to change. That's what keeps you and keeps me from being content. You know what? I keep waiting on the world to change. If, if only, I keep saying. And, and you keep saying, you know, if only this were different. If only, if only I weren't in this. If only they'd stop. If only they'd start. If only whatever. Why you're not content is because you keep waiting on the world to change. Saying, if only, over and over. Let's be honest. The world could change completely in your favor and it still wouldn't be perfect. It still wouldn't be. We would still, within our sinful nature, find a reason to be discontented with any and all circumstances. If only could happen, if only this, and it happens, and guess what? Then you'd see another advertisement, you'd see another person, you'd enter another circumstance, and you'd say, if only again. What you don't need in order to find contentment is whatever the completion of that if-only sentence is. You don't need that. Because what's keeping you from being content is if-only. If only the world would change. You keep waiting on it, and then, maybe then, things will be different. And as I said earlier, if you want to remain discontented, walk out these doors today. Shake my hand, smile, say, hey, good to see you, and just go back to waiting on the world to change and saying, if only, if only, if only. Go ahead. And I say that to myself. <laughs> because guess what? The world ain't going to change, and the world is going to change. It's not going to change, because it's just going to keep changing. And if we keep saying, if only, if only, if only, we're never going to arrive at the peace and contentment and joy that God has for us in Jesus Christ. It'll never happen. The flip side to why you're not content is the only way that you can be content is to get to know the one who changes you. You're not content because you keep waiting on the world to change. The only way that you can be content is to get to know the one who changes you. Listen to what Paul said. I know. I've learned. I've been initiated. I've learned this secret. And guess who provided it all for him? The one who gives him strength, Jesus Christ himself. This isn't about claiming a verse and then trying harder to... Make all things about your efforts. I can do all things. I'm just going to try harder. It's 
It's not about that. It's about Jesus who makes you able. It's about knowing Him. Paul uses that knowing, understanding terminology several times in these few short verses. Leading us to understand that it's only through His continued knowledge of the one who changed him, that he could be content in any and all circumstances. Jesus is the one who makes you able. He's the teacher. He's the secret holder. He's the initiator into the contentment club. He's the gatekeeper. And you have to go through him or you'll never find it. This morning... I really want you, and I hope you have been, I really want you to evaluate where you are with this. Because I honestly believe it's ruining our lives. I really do. The the answer is not the end of the if-only sentence. The answer is to know Jesus better. And that may sound really simplistic, and you think, that's that's all you got? Yep, that's all that's all I got. It's nothing, nothing inherently profound about that until you experience it and you realize, you know what, that's been right all along. That's all I needed. To follow Paul's example and to say this morning, Lord Jesus, I want to know you like that. I've heard it said before, we have all of Jesus that we want. We know him as much as we want to know him. This morning, I wonder if you'd say, Lord, I want to know you like that. That all begins with submitting your life to Him. I want you to know this. I'm not going to take for granted that everybody here has made a decision to follow Jesus. That you've surrendered your life to Him, believed in Him alone for salvation. I'm not going to take that for granted. So I want you to know the bad news. I had the chance to talk with a couple of girls this past week who wanted to be baptized. And I told them, I said, here's the bad news. Everybody's a sinner. Every single one of us. I ask them what sin was. They say bad things you do that are disobedient to God. I said, exactly right. Things that are disobedient to God. I said, you know what? Because of that, you know what God has every right to do? Kill us right now. Anytime he wants to. Why? Because he's completely holy and completely perfect. And sin does not mix with holiness and it cannot coexist. And so in order for us to enter his presence, we have to be perfect. We're not. And so we can't enter his presence. He deserves, he has every right to kill us. That's the bad news. And it's true. Every one of us. I told those little girls, I said, I won't leave you though with the bad news. I said, because the good news is, is that Jesus, God himself, came to earth and lived a perfect life because we couldn't. Died a perfect sacrificial death in our place because we deserve to die. But he didn't stay dead. He was raised again to give us the promise that one day we will be raised again, even after we die, to live with Jesus forever. He holds out that offer. And he says, whoever will believe will receive eternal life. Be forgiven of your sins that you so desperately need to be forgiven of. The bad news is that without Jesus, God has every right to kill you. And without him, one day he will. The good news is that Jesus paid it all. And this morning, will you believe? Will you surrender your life to Him? Maybe you've already done that. If you haven't, it's just as simple as telling God, Lord, I know the bad news, and yet I believe the good news. 
and I'm giving it all to you. I believe Jesus and you for my salvation. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to have read the Bible all the way through. If you understand the bad news and you believe the good news, then Jesus will enter your life, change you. If you've already done that, I just want you to say, Lord Jesus, this morning, I want to know you like that. I want to know you. So that if I'm living in Los Alamos or living in Clay County, it doesn't matter to me. I want to know you like that. This week, your circumstances will change or they won't. And so this week, the only way that you can be content, that you can learn, that you can be initiated, that you can go down that path is to get to know the one who changes you. Because if you keep waiting on the world to change, you're going to die waiting on the world to change. This week, get to know the one who changes you. Read the scripture each day this week. Spend time in prayer. That's how we get to know the Lord. Pay attention to what he's doing in your life. If only, it's killing you. Paul knew Jesus. And he says, if only, it doesn't matter. Because I know the one who makes me able to deal with any and all circumstances. Get to know him this week. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we we really do want to know you like that. God, don't let us get out of here without coming face to face with our own reality right now. And that reality may be that, that we don't know Jesus. And this morning is the time that we need to surrender our lives and believe in Jesus for salvation. God, this morning I I pray for those who need to do that. I pray that, that today would be the day of salvation. They're confessing of their sin and receiving your forgiveness through faith. We thank you for your grace that makes it all possible. And Lord, for all of us, we... we We want to know you like that. Help us, Lord, to to seek you. We know that we'll we'll find you when we seek you with, with all of our heart. And so this week, we pray that we'd seek you and that we, in turn, would find the contentment that you have for us, the sufficiency of knowing Christ. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.